पंद्रह सेकंड में मैं क्या कर सकता हूँ बैंक ऑफ बड़ोडा के एम कनेक्ट प्लस ऐप से बिजली का बिल भर सकता हूँ बैंक ऑफ बड़ोडा भारत का अंतर्राष्ट्रीय बैंक यूर लिस्निंग टू जयपुर बाइट्स द जे एल एफ पॉडकास्ट आई एम योर होस्ट लक्ष दाता I'm here at the Z Jaipur Literature Festival 2020 happening right now at the Digi Palace and what you're about to hear is a live recording of a session from the festival. Enjoy. I've had the pleasure of um uh, meeting your mother and um I wonder if you could start off by reflecting on how she shaped your life your career and your approach to to politics too Actually all of those apply more to my late father unfortunately my mother uh, is a, is a wonderful person I think the most significant quality of hers um that I sort of remember growing up is her complete restlessness and as I called it in one of my dedications of a book to her her divine discontent <laughs> nothing i ever did was good enough yeah and that yeah. may with some kids work badly and lead to some sort of rebellion but somehow in my case it just kept inspired me to keep trying harder and working harder so to that degree i will i will have to admit her most profound impact was on that the sense that whatever you did if it wasn't good enough you needed to try and do better and keep at it my father however was um, uh, uh, a man very much um ahead of his time he he was um um uh, sort of came from what they call a good family that had fallen on hard times his own father died when he was 10 uh he had to walk 8 kilometers to high school barefoot wow. uh to get himself an education um was a proud nationalist at age 12 he led a march in his home village against the british during the quit india movement um he um uh dropped his caste surname in college out of mahatma gandhi and idealism mm-hmm. and then um went off to england uh, at the end of the second world war thanks to the generosity of an elder brother to study and and make his way in the world and i never saw himself as a migrant i happened to be born there because he lived there 10 years mm-hmm. but um he had always seen himself coming back to india he happened to be on the advertising side of the newspaper business so he right, right. he was the london manager of the statesman newspaper and his principal concern was getting british companies that had operations in india to get you know ads from them for the statesman and so on and he was waiting for some englishman to retire because all the <laughs> india based managers were englishmen and when the englishman who was manager of the bombay office retired my dad applied came over and so i i grew up in india from about 2 to 2 and a half after being yeah born there and and um at the same time imbibed my essential attributes and values i would say for me he was very liberal and that stayed with me uh including on personal choices that are quite astonishing for someone of his generation in the indian context to make because yeah. i have people of my generation uh who have not been so kind to their children um i was inconveniently good at taking examinations so i kept coming first in subjects that i didn't particularly care about and when we had to stream in high school for example and um you know you had to choose between science and humanities and i opted for humanities my teachers were so upset that they actually summoned my father to school and said this is our best science student why won't he take science and my father who like every middle class indian parent wanted me to become a doctor or an engineer 
was horrified and said, why won't you do that? And I said, because it doesn't interest me. And he said, but you're first in class in science. And I said, I'm first in class in pretty much everything. But the fact is that you asked me the day after the exam, and I'll have forgotten whatever I wrote. Whereas you asked me about literature or history, and I'll tell you more than I've studied for the exam and more than the school has taught me. Yeah. That's the level of interest I have. And he respected that mm -hmm. and let me take my own stream. And the same thing happened on a couple of other occasions later in life. So those are the kinds of values I tried to pass on in, in my own parenting. Um, at the same time, he was somebody who... Um, was, a, was quite driven, hardworking, a bit of a type A, and I've got some of that too, I guess. Yeah. And he's also the one, I, as a kid, I was, I know this will amuse you today, but as a kid, I was a bit of an introvert. I was the kind of guy who'd go for, you know, social evenings with my parents with a book in my hand and sit in a corner and read. Uh, and, and he's the one who sort of really forced me into a certain level of extroversion, pushed me into debates and speech contests as a young person, initially wrote my speeches for me when I was eight years old. Really? Absolutely. And then, um, in some ways, it's, it, it, it was his drive that, I think, took me in the directions in which I've gone since, both as a, as a public speaker and as somebody who cared about the ideas and issues that should matter in India. And in terms of the literary influences on in your life at that stage and later on, your an author in both fiction and non-fiction, but can you tell the audience something about the formative few books that you read that really made an impression on you? Well, I started writing because I, I was an asthmatic kid, so I actually um, was confined to bed a lot, unable to breathe, and in those were the days before inhalers had been invented and so on, so you took some very strong pills to dilate your bronchoids, and, and they opened up your, your lungs enough for you to breathe. You couldn't sleep, your heart was racing away at... 2,000 beats a minute, and you were essentially um, confined to both being awake and in bed and unable to go out and play with your friends. And so all I had were books, right? So books for my escape, books for my entertainment, and books for my education. There was no TV in India in those days. There was no uh, Nintendo or handheld games or mobile phones or computers or the internet. There were only books. And so everything I did was centered around books from a very young age, and I did read early and read a lot. Um, again, inconveniently so, because if my parents took me to a library, the chances were that I would finish the book in the car on the way home in Bombay traffic. So um, then what, what could I do? So I started writing very much, very derivatively, Right. Uh, along the lines of what I was reading. So I read all these Enid Blyton, you know, Famous Five and mm -hmm. Secret Seven and so on. So I invented the six solvers who were Indian kids having adventures very much like the English kids in her books. Uh, those were never good enough to be published anywhere, but my father got the stories typed up and circulated to friends. Really? Uh, yeah. So that I could begin to believe in myself as a writer. Mm -hmm. And um, it was he, of course, who did the first submissions of my, of my work and, and, and a sort of World War II novella based, very inspired very much by the Biggles books, you know, where you had the, so I had a, an Anglo-Indian fighter pilot called Reginald Bellows who went <laughs> off and saved the world in the Second World War. And this was serialized in a magazine called The Junior Statesman, mm -hmm. um, starting a week before my 11th birthday. Right. And as you know, there's nothing more addictive than seeing your name in print for the first time. You, you really do What age up. were you then? Beg your pardon? What age were you then? Just before 11. So I, I turned um, uh, 11 a week after the first installment of this appeared. Mm. Um, I'd already had one short story in a, in a, in a Bombay newspaper. So uh, fiction was, was my 
instinctively. That's what I read as a child, and that's what I started writing. Um, as I kept writing, kept being published, I sort of also did a bit of campus journalism uh, for reputable Indian publications. By the time I left India to go to graduate school in the States, uh, which was in fact um, at the age of 19, I, um, I had probably appeared in every single English language publication then available in India, including Eve's Weekly and Chandamama. <laughs> so, so, uh, so uh, uh, and, and a lot of it was short stories, but an even larger amount was just all sorts of uh, campus journalism and off-campus journalism that editors would ask me to write. And indeed, I'm rather proud of the fact that those days there was a rather prestigious award which many of today's big names had competed for in those days, I don't think the award exists anymore, called the Rajika Kriplani Young Journalist Award, which was given to the best Indian journalist under 30. Um, and in my first year away in America, I was startled to discover that I had won that. And so my father went off and collected it for me, and I felt he deserved it. So you collected it in absentia for you? Yeah. Great, great. Um, I note that, that uh, you've got a contribution in a forthcoming book, uh, Notes from the Hinterland. Now, this is a book which brings together with a focus on in India's small towns and villages, um, which have inspired its finest writing. Um, I've not seen the book, but I'm interested to know about your contribution to that volume. And I'm which... embarrassed to say I didn't even know I had a contribution to that book, and who's the editor? And oh, it's, 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 your name is listed uh, as, as an Aleph or author in that, but should we move on then? then? Let, we'll have to move on, because I think what's happening is that uh, a lot of my stuff is now being anthologized in various places. Yeah. And sometimes if someone like uh, Aleph, who in any case as my publisher, can be presumed to have the right to do it. I, I, I don't really go into it in much detail. But now that you've told me, I will look out for this book. Yeah, I recommend what it. I've done on there. But the hinterland deserves to be noticed and written about, particularly in English. Yeah, yeah I quite agree. You're commonly described as sort of lazy journalistic shorthand as a Renaissance man. I'm interested to know which era from Indian history would you compare with that great cultural and intellectual efflorescence in Europe. Where, where would you like to have trod the halls in previous years in Indian, in yeah, Indian that, cultural life? That's an interesting question because the answer clearly is not the present, where in any case, I don't know about <laughs> Renaissance man because I've, I probably all the politicians think I'm an intellectual, all the intellectuals think I'm a politician. So I'm not sure that I actually win out in either world. Um, but the truth is that there were great eras, obviously the famous, um, nine jewels of Akbar's court, uh, who, were, who included the brilliant poet and warrior Birbal, who was also the object of many wonderfully amusing stories, um, or conceivably uh, the Indian nationalist movement. The last, um, that the last generation that won us our independence and most of them survived on to the first years after were giants. I mean, there were just so many people who in any era would be considered to be exceptional in all sorts of ways. I mean, if you read Nehru's work, and I know that you're going to think, oh, a congressman would say that. Actually, I started off as much more of a critic of Nehru's. When I wrote the biography of him in 2003, I read everything he had to say and everything he'd written. And I was just awestruck by the man's mind. Some of the finest political prose in the English language in the 20th century was written by Jawaharlal Nehru in prison. And it's something that I think we've allowed ourselves to forget here. There's just some extraordinary talent out there uh, whom we only know in very limited context and as part of 
very narrow political agendas. Okay, and moving on from that, um, again, as a, a person that loves visiting this country and, and interested in it, publishing books on India from overseas, why, why do you think um, Mahatma Gandhi and Jawaharlal Nehru's legacies are under such direct and unflinching attack at, at the moment? I mean, we, we British, I think we now hold our hands up about our shameful colonial past, but we're genuinely mystified by the treatment of Gandhi and Nehru today. And is this not squandering this, one of this country's greatest assets in terms of its soft power and its cultural uh, absolutely. Legacy. absolutely, but it's because those who've come to power now have come from a very different political tradition. Mm -hmm. See, in the nationalist movement, there was one big split everyone knows about, the split that led to partition. And that split was not about ideology, it wasn't Marxist versus capitalist, it wasn't about geography, it wasn't northerners versus southerners, it was about one simple question alone. Should religion be the determinant of nationhood? Now those on the Muslim side who believe that, created Pakistan. That was the idea of Pakistan. And the vast majority on the Indian side, the very, very vast majority, led by Mahatma Gandhi, Nehru, and many other followers, said, no, religion does not determine our identity, does not determine our nationhood. We have fought for the freedom of everyone. We'll create a country for everyone. <laughs> and they wrote a constitution that embodied that. Now, who in what remained of India rejected that constitution? It was the Hindutva movement, which starting from Savarkar's first definition of it back in 1922, where he said, um, uh, Hindutva, well, I mean, Hindutva was, as you know, a uh, Hindu was somebody for whom India was his Pitrabhumi, the land of his ancestors, and his Punyabhumi, his holy land. So uh, by that definition, Hindus, Sikhs, Buddhists, Jains, filled both categories, but Muslims and Christians did not. Uh, nor did Jews and Parsis, but Jews and Parsis were considered to be uh, welcome guests, model minorities, whatever. But Muslims and Christians did not. And the Hindutva movement explicitly rejected the constitution. In my book, Why I'm a Hindu, I've quoted at length in their own words, the writings of Savarkar, of M.S. Golwalkar, who was the longest serving Sarsang Shalak of the RSS from 1940 to 1973, and of the man who Mr. Modi has hailed as his ideological mentor and hero, Deen Dayal Upadhyay, who was Secretary General and later President, briefly, of the Bharatiya Jansang, the forerunner of the BJP. And these were the folks who actually agreed with the Muslim idea that religion should determine nationhood. Except for them, it was a different religion that should determine nationhood. So, in the, uh, in the uh, sort of historical canon, the first advocate of the two-nation theory was actually V.D. Savarkar, as, as the head of the Hindu Mahasabha, who called upon India to recognize Hindus and Muslims as two separate nations, three years before the Pakistan Muslim League passed the Pakistan Resolution in Lahore in 1940. Now, I'll give you this background just to say that when you ask why is this demonization happening, it's because they actually said this constitution should be torn up and thrown away. They gave two objections to it. The first, that it was... Uh, created by Anglophile lawyers, full of imported ideas, and written in the wrong language, English, all of which was true, and therefore, uh, the only answer one could give is, so what? If you can get good ideas from anywhere, why shouldn't good ideas, as the old epics say, fly to us from all directions? But then the second objection was a more far-reaching one. They said, 
listen, the flaw with this constitution is it assumes that the nation of India is a territory and the constitution is written for all the people on this territory. Wrong, they say, a nation is not a territory, it's a people, and the people of India are the Hindu people only. So that was the argument that they advanced. And obviously, there could be nothing more different than the vision of Gandhiji, who was a deep and profoundly believing Hindu, but who was influenced by the ethics and values and teachings of every other faith, who had prayer meetings every morning, but as part of his bhajans, would have Christian hymns, would have uh, uh, verses from the Quran, would have verses from the Granth Sahib, would have uh, uh, pretty much every religion that was <laughs> available in the area where he was having his prayer meeting, would have a chance to express their voice. This was the kind of uh, India that Gandhiji stood for, and as we all know, he gave his life in the end on the altar of Hindu-Muslim unity. He was killed by a former member of the RSS uh, who believed passionately that Gandhiji was putting Muslim interests ahead of Hindu interests, which makes Gandhiji the first significant martyr to um, the Hindu-Muslim divide that the British had so assiduously cultivated uh, for, for 100 years. And I would argue that what happened after that was that because these guys grew steadily in appeal from about 2 or 3% around the time of independence in terms of popular support to becoming more and more a significant party um, from two seats in 1984 in the Lok Sabha, as you know, to 80-odd seats in the next election, uh, then to 116 seats, then to 182, at which point they formed a coalition government headed by Mr. Vajpayee, and finally to the two absolute majorities of Mr. Modi. Now, Mr. Modi and indeed all of his top echelon come from the RSS tradition, where they are taught all that was wrong about Gandhiji's writing. For example, Goldwalker would say, what is all this talk about Ahimsa? Every Hindu god is shown with weapons. So Gandhiji was even fundamentally wrong about the value of nonviolence, according to Goldwalker. And these are the kinds of texts and teachings that have been absolutely inculcated in the minds of those who now rule us. No wonder then that Mahatma Gandhi has been reduced to his glasses. I mean, his ideas, his values, his principles, his life have completely been tossed aside. But his glasses, because of the brand value of the Gandhi name, are the symbol of the Swachh Bharat campaign. That's what's happening today. Thank you for that remarkably uh, well-rounded answer to the question. If you're hinting that I took too long, I apologize. <laughs> not at all, not at all. It. <laughs> not at all. Um, also, as a, a foreigner, as I said, who, who's very uh, passionate about India, I'm also quite baffled often when I'm talking to Indians from different parts of the country, uh, and that includes the sort of metropolitan elites, um, how ignorant they are about other Indians in different parts of the country, be it the south, the northeast, or what have you. Um, is this something you think that ought to be addressed? I mean, it's a very big country. Communications are pretty good, but there's still a great deal of misplaced um, sentiment about other Indians. And do you ever worry that that may one day uh, lead them to split apart in some respect? Well, I must say, for the first time, I'm beginning to get worried. Now, before any of you panic, let me explain why. I would say the first 70 years of India's independence was a story of greater integration. Uh, 
uh, in every respect, greater familiarity with each other, uh, with each other's foods. I mean, masala dosas are now as easily available in street food as, as chole bhature in the north, and indeed puris and uh, alu bhaji are easily available in the south, and so on and so forth. Golgappas under different names can be eaten in every corner of the country. Some would call them puchkas, some would call them pani puris, some would call them golgappas, but the integration and every time there's a cricket match, India's never been more integrated, right? So we're all nationalists uh, for three hours or seven hours or five days, whichever format we're watching. But, but, for the first time we're seeing a politics, you know, I used to say, and some of you may have even heard me say this, the thing about India is in a large, diverse country, a democracy like ours, you don't really need to agree all the time, so long as you agree on the ground rules of how you will disagree. But for the first time, we have a government that doesn't believe in the same ground rules. We have actually functioned within a certain set of assumptions about India, about the nature of India, about our country, about the equality of the people of every religious affiliation in this land, and so on. And all those assumptions are for the first time not shared by those in office and in government. And the frightening thing about that is that they are axiomatic beliefs for many of us. So if you look at, for example, a lot of what the BJP is winning votes on in the north, it's losing them votes in the south. So the same sort of bigotry, intolerance of Muslims, uh, negative readings of history, even rewritings of history, all of that simply does not only not resonate in the south, it actually causes offense in the south in places where our sense of our history is not the same as theirs. So the, many of the BJP leaders manifest a historical chip on their shoulder about uh, Muslim injustices and depredations that they see it over the years. And for example, coming from my state of Kerala, Islam came peacefully in the lifetime of the Prophet through traders and, and travelers who had been trading and traveling for a thousand years before the Prophet Muhammad was born. And so when the new news came from there, it actually interested people. One of the Kerala kings, Jeremiah Perumal, actually said, this sounds interesting, I want to go meet this guy. So he actually got on a ship and sailed off to the Arabian Peninsula with his, with his uh, retinue in order to meet the prophet. He actually did. He didn't, in fact, survive to come back. But the evidence of his visit still stands in the shape of coconut trees from Kerala growing on the Oman Peninsula. It's not native to that peninsula. So that's the kind of history we have, uh, by and large, in the South. Um, a Tamil Muslim uh, and a Tamil Christian would feel they're far more in common with a Tamil Hindu than, with, um, uh, than a Tamil Hindu would with, let's say, uh, 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 a Hindu from the North, necessarily, because of cultural issues, historical experiences, language, cuisine, dress, and so on. Now, in India, up to now, we have celebrated these differences. We've said, this is great, this is what we're all about. Let's enjoy the fact that we manage diversity so much better than other countries that are not even as diverse as we are. But today, for the first time, there are social divisions being promoted by the government. And those social divisions are going to unfortunately have a political connotation when a constitutional amendment that freezes political representation at the level of the 1971 census expires in 2026. Ironically, this amendment brought in by Mrs. Gandhi, Indira Gandhi, was renewed by Mr. Vajpayee's government without debate unanimously in the parliament for another 25 years. So it will be 50 years. But why did Mrs. Gandhi bring this in? Her principal motive was actually 
that she didn't want to reward those states that were failing to control their populations. So that was her motive. But why Mr. Vajpayee renewed it was for national unity. He knew that having a coalition government in the north with some southern partners and so on, that the last thing you want to do was to politically disenfranchise the south. The present government and present leadership has no such scruples. They have already told the Finance Commission to move away from the 71 census to the 2011 census. And by the time the next um, time to renew this constitutional amendment comes up, you'll have the 2021 census in which some southern states will actually lose population. Kerala will become the first state in the Indian Union to have a lower population than the previous census at the next census. And many of the other southern states are growing at below 1%, whereas northern India and particularly the Hindi heartland states have been going at 2.2, 2 2.6, 2.8%. So the result is going to be that about 40 Lok Sabha seats from the south will disappear <coughs> and be reborn in the north. Now you can imagine what political consequence that's going to have. On the one hand, you have this different sensibility coming from the government. On the other hand, you have the real danger that your voice will not be relevant in parliament because there are too few of you. You tell me how people are likely to react. I worry. I'm, not, I'm a passionate advocate of Indian unity. My own life has been spent throughout India. Apart from being born in London, I went to school in Bombay, high school in Calcutta, college in Delhi, and my parents were from Kerala. So I have roots everywhere and batchmates and classmates everywhere in the country. I mean, India's nationhood, India's unity is fundamental to who I am. But I worry about it now because you've got people who are so completely oblivious that there is an India beyond what they know. There is an India beyond the history they remember. There is an India between, before, beyond the politics that they succeed on. And this India, I mean, I can tell you that this India is not going to accept the continuation of this. If a, if a, if a North Indian Hindutva-inclined bigoted majority manages to perpetuate the political uh, control and political longevity of this lot, I really do worry about uh, the future of India. And... and uh, Creative constitutional solutions will have to be found to save this country. And it's also a cultural thing. I mean, I'll give you one example. In Kerala, our biggest festival is called Onam. I don't know how many of you know about Onam. Onam is a celebration which every community participates equally. It's like our Christmas and Diwali combined. It is the biggest thing that happens in Kerala. Everyone has... Uh, new, wears new clothes, gives gifts to their friends, has big feasts, uh, Onam Sadhya, and so on. And no one considers it a Hindu festival. Hindus, Muslims, Christians equally celebrate it. But what does Onam commemorate? Its origins are in a Hindu, myth, a Hindu legend, and that is the story of Mahabali, who was such a good king and became so popular that the Devas began to worry. And Mahabali decided that um, his own ambitions, you know, were were uh, also getting somewhat larger than he, could, than he could perhaps contain within his own kingdom. So there was a real worry on the part of the devas that Mahabali would even perhaps intrude on their space in the heavens. So they send an incarnation of Vishnu, Vamana, as a dwarf. And Vamana comes to Mahabali, who's always known as a very kind, just, and generous king, and says, may I ask you for a boon? And uh, this gigantic king sees his little dwarf and says, of course, what do you want? And he says, I just want some land. He says, certainly I'll give you some land. What do you want? He says, just as much as three steps. He said, but you're a small chap. Three steps won't be very much land. And Vamana says, that's all I want. 
And what does Mahabali do? He says, okay, your wish is granted. And he's a man who famously keeps his word. And of course, then Vamana turns into Vishnu with his first step. He embraces the entire world. With the second step, he embraces the heavens. And then he turns to Mahabali and says, where do I put my third step? And Mahabali, realizing that he's in the presence of Vishnu, bows his head and says, on my head. And so Vishnu puts his foot on Mahabali's head and drives him into the netherworld. But before going, he asks Mahabali for one boon. Mahabali says, look, I've been uh, a good king to my people. Allow me to come back every year to visit them and see how they're doing and make sure they're prosperous. So Vishnu grants him that wish. Mahabali is then pushed into the netherworld. The devas win this. But every year, Mahabali comes back to show, make sure that his people are prosperous and happy and living in equality and grace. And that is Onam. So Onam we celebrate very much like a sort of secular Christmas uh, for a Westerner uh, uh, as, as an occasion for joy and prosper celebrating prosperity and happiness. What does Mr. Amit Shah of the BJP do two, three years ago? <laughs> the eve of Onam, the day before Onam, as a good North Indian who likes to commemorate every important Hindu festival, he tweets, Happy Vamana Puja. Can you imagine? Vamana is the man whose unjust action led to the loss of this greatest, most popular king in Kerala. And we are celebrating him when he returns for one day of the year. And the BJP is saying, happy Vamana Puja. You get the, you get the irony of it. That's how uh, their vision differs from the vision of the people of Kerala. And it's one example of why the BJP is not winning any seats. I don't know if the uh, audience is aware, you may have seen on social media or TV that uh, Shashi recently put a toe in the uh, form of stand-up comedy. But I'm, I'm immediately going to disappoint you because I'm not going to ask him to do some stand-up comedy. Sit down <laughs> tragedy. Sit down, sit down. That's just a lead-in to ask him... Um, is there still a place in the Lok Sabha and other political arenas of debate in this country for good-natured political humour? Because it's said in, in Westminster that you know, Labour and Conservative politicians can knock blocks off each other in the chamber and then go for a beer or a cup of tea and many are close friends outside the chamber. Um, is the consensual side of political engagement in this country still a thing? You know, it used to be. It, it used to be people had good friendships, uh, even blood relationships or marital relationships across the political divide. Uh, today, it's much, much less true. There's really? a, a bitterness to the partisan edge of politics today, which I think is most unfortunate. Um, and particularly amongst the two principal parties, there's a level of, of unpleasantness that makes true friendship very, very difficult indeed. Some of the smaller parties still can reach out to each other across political lines. But we are seeing a situation in which, um, while civility might be maintained by some, um, there is now a, a sort of Manichaean uh, element. Everything is black or white. If I say anything even reasonably appreciative of something the government has done, immediately the stories are, Tharoor is going to join the BJP. I mean, because the assumption is he can't possibly sit where he is and see any merit in anything these guys are doing. Today, I don't see any merit in what they're doing, but there was a time when I still had hope, as some of you did, 
And uh, it became almost impossible to express that. Um, and, and I think the frustrations with that um, become manifest to any of you who follows our political discourse regularly, because regularly you will see in our media, time after time after time, uh, examples of unnecessarily vitriolic abuse, uh, of, of um, uh, a sort of take-no-prisoners attitude uh, to the other side when this lot is in power. Um, we've just seen the finance minister spend 105 days in jail. In jail, without a conviction of any sort. So, yeah. So, I mean, there's something going wrong, I think, with the um, extent of our, um, of our political um, estrangement from each other so you're that is not it's healthy for our democracy. You're saying it's been poisoned in some ways. Why? Absolutely. The wells have been poisoned. Okay. And we're all drinking from that toxic water. Okay. Your last... I thought you were going to ask about political humor, actually, because when you began Wait, by... I'm coming back to that. Coming back to that. Um, <laughs> Your last few books have all been non-fiction, and I happen to know that your next two or three are also non-fiction. Um, have you lost the zest for fiction writing, given that you talked about it so eloquently earlier, or is it just that life doesn't permit the time to write fiction? That, it's not just time. Time is the scarcest commodity I've got, and I must say that being a Lok Sabha MP, some of my more prolific writer friends are Rajya Sabha MPs, and they don't have to worry about constituents pawing at their door at 7 a.m. or 6 a.m. for that matter, or calling at midnight with demands that have to be addressed. Uh, the truth is that as a Lok Sabha MP, my time is principally at the disposal of my constituents and my party, and that does create severe limitations of time. But with fiction, what's more difficult is not just time, it's that you need to create a space inside your head to create an alternative universe, a universe whose dialogues, characters, events, incidents, and so on are as real to you while you're immersed in that universe as, as anything that you're actually living or experiencing in your daily life. Now, that becomes very difficult because you create, if I can borrow my friend Amitav Ghosh's words, a glass palace, a palace of illusion, if you like, uh, in which you can inhabit at least for a few hours a day to maintain that continuity. But when you're in a profession which can interrupt that regularly and often does and drags you off to other kinds let of Let alone things, the media interrupting you. And not alone, let alone the media interrupting me. Uh, the result is that you've too often come back and find cracks in that palace or the glass palace altogether shattered because you can't keep um, returning to a world of make-believe in which you have not been living for some time. Whereas with non-fiction, what you can do is to actually go back to what you began to write. You may have been interrupted, not be able to touch it for six, seven weeks. But by just reading what you're writing, the train of thought, the logical argument, because it's after all your own mind that's at work, will come in rather than your imagination at work that needs to be sustained. So I have several sort of half-begun or even more than half-begun uh, novels that I have abandoned on my laptops or my desktop. Um, rather than actually books that, um, that, uh, that ever saw the light of day. My last novel was 2001, Riot, and since then it's been nothing but non-fiction. I think one day it's quite possible that the voters will return me to the world of literature, and then, then I'll have a chance. Then perforce you'll be back to writing fiction. Okay. So Shashi, you are unquestionably a major celebrity in, in this country and globally too, and a highly charismatic individual. Um, you. You're also, of course, a politician. Could you reflect on the nexus in this country between celebrity and politics? I actually, in all fairness, I think uh, uh, most politicians 
and you know the country is full of very hard-working politicians aren't celebrities they don't get the sort of recognition they deserve except in their own immediate circles or their own constituencies or their own uh, areas and so on i mean uh, is that right would you all agree with me i mean many of you would not recognize uh, your local mp perhaps um, and certainly there was a time when uh, uh, not that long ago when in fact the election posters didn't even carry the pictures of the candidates um, but the fact is that now you are looking at an India which is more personalized in its politics, so individuals do get a chance to make their mark in China. I would argue, however, what's curious about this phenomenon is that ours, unlike the American system, is not supposed to be about individuals. It's supposed to be about parties. It's a parliamentary system. Uh, you're essentially supposed to be asking for votes, not for the person you are, but the kind of ideals, principles, and policies you represent and can implement if all the others like you in your party get elected. Now, I happen not to like that system. I much prefer uh, a directly elected president, city mayor, chief minister, who will be accountable to the people as an individual, because I believe human beings are fundamentally individuals, and it's the individual we ought to judge. But that isn't the system we've got. We've got the parliamentary system. And in that situation, you could well argue there really is no room for celebrities. It's, it's all about who sells the party agenda most plausibly. So you've read a, led a remarkably full and interesting life, and now we know that you don't have time to write fiction. So, so when are we going to get the full Tarot autobiography? Uh, Michael, a few publishers have come knocking on my door, and I've always told them that, listen, I, I don't think I've accomplished enough to write an autobiography. I need, I need to... Uh, put a few more things under my belt before I feel it's worth writing. I, I, I admit there are interesting things about my life that are worth telling, and once in a while I regale people with anecdotes, but I don't actually write them up very much. Um, and the big danger is, of course, that as you get too old, you might actually forget some of the more interesting things you've done. So at some point I will be tempted, but not yet. And no chance, borrowing from something I heard Sanjay Roy say to you earlier, no chance of... Uh Shashi slowing down, <laughs> retiring. No, I think what Sanjay very kindly was saying is don't attend too many other literary festivals. Come to Jaipur, but slow down elsewhere. Slow down the else <laughs> elsewhere. Okay. No, the truth is that Jaipur was the first. I wrote a column in the Times of India, I think, or the Hindu, sometime in the uh, first five or six years of the century, uh, lamenting the fact that there were no literary festivals in India and talking about the ones around the world that attended, what fun it is for the audience, for readers, for writers to get to know each other, to create a sort of community of writers. So I, I'd written about that. And then within about three years after that, JLF came into being. I missed the first one, but I came for the second JLF. And I, I think there were about 150 people sitting in chairs on this front lawn. And that was the best turnout they'd had. Um, it, it really was, was a different era. But now, uh, the country has witnessed a proliferation of literary festivals. Almost every second town has a literary festival, and the problem is most of them are in January. So I have been running, hurtling around a bit too much this month, and that's what Sanjay was referring to. But it's in some ways a good thing, because if, we, if literary festivals become a way of keeping books and reading alive in an era when there are so many other distractions, then I think something worthwhile is accomplished for them. And going back to the, the, the earlier comment which elicited a big audience response on your stand-up comedy, is, is there room still for humor in 
political life in India? The short answer is no, which is why, you know, when I did this stand-up comedy thing, a lot of my staff were extremely nervous. There's a thin line between being courageous and being foolhardy. And the big worry is whether I might trip over the line and fall on the wrong side. I think I got away with it. But uh, generally speaking, my experience about humor and politics is in India, it doesn't work. I mean, many of you are familiar with the big mishap I had in my first few months as a politician in this country when um, the government declared an austerity drive and uh, a journalist who turned out to be later a pro-BJP journalist uh, wrote to me on Twitter saying, so Mr. Minister, does this mean you will travel cattle class? And I, I having come this. from 30 years odd abroad, uh, where cattle class is a routine term, is not meant to insult anybody, is meant to insult the airlines for herding us all in like cattle. I replied, thinking that since he used the phrase and I knew the phrase and everyone knew it, I replied, yes, I'll travel in cattle class out of solidarity with all our holy cows. Uh, but thank you, I'm glad somebody found it funny. The vast majority of India did not. I got on a plane and went off on an official visit to Africa. I was minister in the external affairs ministry at the time. And the dung hit the fan here. I mean, literally, uh, you had, it was front page news for three days, saying that I had demeaned and insulted economy class passengers. Every sort of socialist politician in my party stood up and demanded my head. The chief minister of this state asked for me to resign. I mean, the whole thing was just, and this, now, of course, I mean, you know, the whole thing got diffused when the prime minister, no less, told the gaggle of journalists, for God's sake, it was only a joke. And that somehow pricked the balloon and that was the end of that. But for three or four days, this dominated coverage and I realized the wisdom of Shakespeare's old line, going back, you know, 400 plus, 500 years now, when he said that the success of a jest lies not in the tongue of the teller, but in the ear of the hearer. What a wise... A wise line that was, and I knew it and I should have remembered it, because essentially it is not what you intended to say and have whatever, with whatever sincerity you said it, it's what people think they heard that matters. And that's so true in politics, because in politics nothing matters but what people think. And what people think in this case is that I'm a jerk who compared all economy class travelers to cattle, which I did not and never intended to. But that was the example. And then the second problem in India, of course, is multilingualism. Cattle class may have been a familiar expression in English, and certainly in the West it was. But once you've rendered it into, uh, into Hindi and Malayalam and Bangla and Gujarati, boy, you're done for. I mean, that, that, that. So after that, to this day, as you'll see, if you just go on my social media timelines, there'll be somebody flinging that at me uh, day after day after day. They haven't understood what I was trying to do, but it wasn't, obviously, the, the price I paid for it wasn't worth the success of a joke. Far too high. <laughs> and also, the audience might not be aware that um, Shashi is putting together a book of, I think, your 200 most mellifluous phrases in the English language. <laughs> no, I'm not. What I'm doing is, the Hindustan Times talked me into doing a sort of word of the week, um, which was actually a lighthearted thing I thought I'd toss off, simply because, because um, in a curious sort of way, I never thought that there was anything particularly unusual. I mean, I learned my English in India, for God's sake. I went to English medium schools and colleges here. Half the words I use, I've been using as a debater since Stevens College. I mean, the fact is, these were words that were not that 
bizarre or uncommon in those days, and we rather prided ourselves on mastering some quote-unquote obscure or difficult words, um, because in undergraduate life you want to sound clever, and sometimes the words stick in your head, and sometimes they don't. But here it became a bit of a joke. Um, That's unquestionably your, one of your great calling cards, isn't it, too? It's become sort of a, a brand thing I mean, now, which, which I had never expected it to be. So I thought, why not? Because it, uh, it wouldn't, be, wouldn't be a bad idea to just talk about words in a more interesting way than a yeah. dictionary would. So, you know, talk about anecdotes relating to the words, their context, they use their origin, and so on. And that kind of caught on. I, didn't want, I did wonder how long the thing would last, but we're heading up uh, almost to a year's worth of, um, of columns. And, and meanwhile, a number of different publishers came up asking if I could make a book on words. And the first one to come was... Penguin, who um, uh, said, you know, uh, somebody had cracked a joke about whether I was writing a Tharurosaurus, uh, <laughs> which, of course, is meant to be a play on thesaurus, but also sounded like a terrifying dinosaur. So, <laughs> and there I am, the terrifying dinosaur of Indian politics. But anyway, so um, uh, I finally succumbed, and so we'll be putting a number of these uh, words of the week, uh, along with suitable illustrations, light-hearted illustrations into a volume sometime in the first half of this year. Well, I'm sure we all look forward to that. <laughs> well, it's the kind of book that people should keep in their bathroom and dip into once in a while, you know. Might be a good cure for you know what. But anyway. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Jepper Bites. If you like this episode, please subscribe to our show on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this. Jepperbytes is a Launchora production. Producers of Story Talking with Laksh, The Visionary Podcast, Jazz India Circuit Podcast, Poetry Darbar, and most recently, Play Me Life. All our shows are available on all major podcast apps. Once again, I'm your host, Laksh Data, and thank you for listening. Thank you.